We are continuing our, story, our series I'm calling uh, The God of Israel Freshly Revealed, and it's kind of a series on the Trinity uh, that we kind of tend to think is just heavy theology, uh, but it, uh, it really isn't. It, it, I mean, it's not just heavy theology. It is, but it's not just that. There are basically uh, three major faiths in the world that hold to what is called monotheism, one God and only one God. It's Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. But now when we start talking about Christianity and we Christians start talking about the Trinity, uh, the, the people of the other monotheistic religions, they, they look at us and go, you can't really hold to three persons and still be, hold to one God. You just can't do that. And I have to admit that when I start talking about the Trinity or discussing the Trinity with other people, I, I kind of think, yeah, you know what? We, we kind of do own the, owe the world a, a, an explanation of all this. We do have to kind of explain, how does this, how does this happen? How do we do get, get uh, um, three people and three distinct persons and can still maintain one God? And, and uh, how, do we, how do we maintain all this? And when we, when we listen to this upper room passage of John 13 to 17, and, and Paul read chapter 14, which we'll be focusing in on, it does feel like there's this whole mishmash, this mixture, this fabric of a Father, Son, Holy Spirit doing all these kinds of things. And how do we... How do we go about doing that? And well, I think we do owe the world an explanation about all this. And what we usually do is, um, is we kind of resort to analogies. Uh, it's, it's more than just a math problem. That's what I'm titling the sermon this morning. It's more than just a math problem. But we kind of go to, 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 to use some analogies to try to explain this. We talk about the, the three-leaf uh, clover here. And it's got three leaves, but it's, yes, it's, it's one clover. It's, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but there's, it kind of falls because each leaf is not the clover, and the clover is more than just the leaves, and so that kind of falters. Sometimes we just use, like, a, like this guy here, we say, well, there's this man, and he's a father, and he's a son, and he's a, and he's a, he's a husband. And we say, that's kind of like the Trinity. Well, that's, that's all fine and good, too, but um, it's still just one guy. You know, he just has one guy with, with different roles. Uh, sometimes people use the egg. It's got the yolk and the white and the shell, but... The shell is not the egg, and the yolk's not the egg, and, and uh, sometimes we use water. We say, you know, water can exist in ice or liquid or steam, and we say, well, that's kind of like the Trinity. Well, yes and no, but if we carry it to its final extreme, to the final conclusion, you take a molecule of water, and it can't exist in ice, liquid, or steam at the same time. It's either one or the other. It doesn't do that. And so when it, we talk about these analogies, we do fall short. It just, they just don't really capture what the Bible shows us and what, was, what is considered as true uh, Trinity theology. And so what exactly is the Trinity and who is the Trinity? Uh, if you Google Trinity, you will find her. <laughs> Trinity from the Matrix. But that is not the Trinity we are talking about. Okay, as exciting as that is, as, as fun as that is, as fun as those, those movies are, that is not the Trinity we are talking about. If we look at the Trinity, that's kind of how it's explained in, in most classrooms and, and theology studies and in books and things, that you have three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but all three is God. Father is God. Son is God. Holy Spirit is God. And so that's kind of how we look at it. And it still kind of leads us with a little bit, I'm not exactly sure how this works. Well, there was a... Um, a heresy that, that sprung up around the third century from Arius, and he said that is impossible. We can't do that. That the Son was, was created by the Father. 
And so his famous phrase was, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when the Christ, when the Son was not. That he created, that the Father was created the Son. And they literally, there was big portions of the church that literally sang their way into heresy. Uh, they, they made hymns and songs about this, and it just kind of spread throughout the church, and it seemed to grow, and it finally was struck down in the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople, but it still spread, and it still spread, you know, a large part through music. And so anybody who thinks that music is not important to worship and the words are not important, I just remind them, I just point to areas. And I really appreciate, Kendra spends a lot of time making sure that the words we sing, the music we sing, is theologically sound, because it can... It can really, it, it spreads more than most sermons uh, as far as when it gets heresy going and, or what is it was teaching. But I think there is a help here that helps me. If you don't know, well, the church was, was really large and kind of considered one church in the ancient days in the, in the first three or four centuries. But then it, uh, it began to divide and split. And in 1054, it finally split between an eastern branch and a western branch. And it basically, like most splits, it was overpower. Uh, they said it was theology, but it was pretty much power. The patriarch of the East and the Pope of the West kind of had a, had a fallen out. They disagreed over the date of Easter. They disagreed over how a monk should cut their hair and things like that. I mean, you know, it, but it's basically power. But the East, East was more mystical. Greek was more nuanced. Latin is more mechanical, and it's more logical. And so you kind of had these two separate branches. And the West came up, and they, they tried to define the Trinity as starting with one, and then dividing it up into three, and then trying to maintain that balance. Well, these Cappadocian fathers, the three Cappadocians, this is an icon for them. <laughs> yay! And there was great rejoicing, yay! <laughs> Gregory, Gregory, and Basil. Okay, that's their names. They came with a different perspective. They start with three and come to one. They start with three persons, three distinct persons, they said the Father is God, but there's these two other persons who are equal to the Father, and they were so united in their basic nature, in their purpose, in their goals, in their love, in their fellowship, that they became one, that they were one. So they are three people, they start with three and get one out of that. And that helps a little bit, but basically it's a mystery. It is by far the most profound mystery of Christianity. How do we do this? It is, it is vital, but it's profound. And like I said last week, a mystery is, uh, is not something that we cannot understand. A mystery is something that we endlessly understand. In other words, as we grow and as we learn, we grow in our understanding, we grow in our, our, our sensory knowledge, our, our relationship with the Trinity, and we grow in that, we grow in more understanding, but we will never reach the point where we go, oh yeah, I, I got it. I got it, folks. I got the Trinity. It's down. We'll never reach there. We don't get a mystery. The mystery gets us. And that's the difference. And so, yes, it is a mystery. But is it just for something for egghead theologians to debate in a classroom to talk about? I think it is so distinct and it is so important that it actually is the heart of Christianity. It really affects our daily life. It affects how we see God. It affects how we see each other. 
Because you have this eternal flow of love and life between these three persons that have existed from eternity past to eternity future. And the way we see that affects how we see God, how we relate to God, and how we relate to each other. That God for us is not some distant, static monarch some way who's detached from the world and he watches the world and watches life goes on and then critiques and judges everything. This is a God who has become involved in us. And when we look at this, this uh, what's called the Upper Room Discourse in John chapters 13 through 17, it is immersed in the Trinity. And he starts off, it starts off with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And then he goes through and he starts teaching the disciples. And it ends in chapter 17 with his prayer, prayer for himself and prayer for his disciples. And so it begins with, with washing the feet and, the, and then the, explaining the glory, which we'll get to in a minute. And then, it, then we get to 14, which is the heart of the, of the upper room discourse. And then we go to 15 and 16, and, and, and Jesus is explaining stuff about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit until he finally gets to the prayer. But at the heart is the chapter that Paul read this morning, chapter 14. And we see that all this stuff that Jesus is talking about with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all these things that we see, what he is saying is that it is absolutely essential for us to abide in him to abide, to dwell in him. And that's what makes Trinitarianism different from other monotheistic religions. That we are to abide in him, remain in him, stay with him within this flow of, the, of, of eternal love and life. We step into the flow and it flows through us and in us and we flow out of it. It's like the, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit spills over into us by the agency of the Spirit. Spills over into us and it changes everything. It's not static, it's dynamic. That abiding in Him is life and it is life-giving. Big difference. That's why it's the heart of Christianity. It is absolutely vital for following Christ. That's what makes it different. So we're going to look at this real quickly, why these things, why this abiding in Christ, why this Trinity is so absolutely important. How this love sort of ripples out from the Trinity and flows into us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. It is vital for our relationships. And I'm going to back up a little bit, just one paragraph before chapter 14, because this is kind of where it starts. And Jesus is telling us that, that he's telling us about his glory, of how he is going to be glorified, his, majest, his majesty, his greatness. And I mentioned this last week in passing, but I want to dwell on this a little bit longer this morning. When he's talking about this dwell, this glory, this majesty, and this presence of Jesus with us, abiding with us, he's attaching it to the cross. So we have this, this unexpected demonstration of his greatness in the cross, which is, which is mind-boggling. If you're talking about any other monotheistic re, uh, religion, that's not how it works. You see God's majesty in all kinds of great things, but Jesus is saying the way his glory is most astonishingly demonstrated is in servitude, is in servanthood. He washes the disciples' feet. Now, you got to remember, when you wash the disciples' feet, 
They come in, they're, they're, it's not just dusty roads. We're talking about a place that has no sewage, has no garbage pickups on every, th every Friday morning or whenever your garbage pickup is. It's filthy. And you come in and people usually have to wash their own feet. The bucket's provided. Well, in this case, Jesus does that. And that's bad enough. He said, that's, glor that's my glory is washing feet. What? But not only that, it's the cross. His glory is manifested in the cross. This God, this vast God that cannot be contained by millions of galaxies, this vast God who can create the universe with a word, this vast God who sets the nature in course, the, just sets the, the nature in course and in, in routine and, and sets it going, but can also interrupt it and sidestep it if he wants to, this vast God shows his glory most in the cross. And last week I mentioned that the glory is demonstrated because of his presence with his people, that those two things are connected. His presence with us and his glory are connected. And the supreme example of his presence with us is that event on Calvary on the cross. That's where the glory was. And, he's, and then he goes on, he says, he says, just as I wash my feet, you do the same. And he says in, in uh, this last section in 13, before we get to 14, he says, this is the how the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him and will glorify the Son himself and will glorify him at once. The death of a rebel is usually not how we think of glory. But that's what he's saying. And then he goes on to say, a new command I give to you. Love one another just as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The Trinity is vital. Abiding in the Trinity is vital for our relationships. Because he loved, we are to love others. Now, this is kind of tricky here. When he says, because I give to you, because I love one another just as I have loved you, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that because I loved you, therefore you've got to love everybody else? Well, he means at least that. Uh, does he mean that just that you have to love others like, in the same manner that I loved you? In other words, I washed your feet, therefore you need to do things like washing feet? Well, that's probably true too. But if we look at this from a Trinity perspective, He's saying, I want you to love people in the same way that the Trinity exists in love, this kind of eternal, ever-flowing life and love in the Trinity. He's saying we need to love each other as the three persons in the Trinity love each other and as Jesus has demonstrated to us. That's how we do it. That's pretty amazing that we have to do that. But that's why abiding is so important. We're able to do it because we dwell in the Trinity. We dwell in him. We remain in him. John loves that word abide. It's a major theme throughout the whole book. He uses it some like 40 times in his book. And most of them are right here. That's important. That's how we do it. We love each other with the same kind of love that exists in the Trinity by dwelling in the Trinity, by dwelling in God. 
God does not dwell with us, and we do not dwell with him in isolation. We do it with other people, our families, our friends. We do it in this church. We dwell in intimacy with God, not in isolation from one another. And that reveals the way out. Paul mentioned this morning before the reading that this was a deliverance from the curse. Well, this is revealing our way out, our way out of this curse. We don't accept the curse as the way things are, not as Christians, not as Trinitarians. This takes us out of the curse. We move away from the curse, and it affects our relationship. It's vital for our relationships. Abiding is vital for rest. Jesus says, I will take you, I will show you, my father builds these houses, builds this mansion, and there's rooms for everybody. And he says, that's where where you'll be. That is the destination, God himself. And they say, well, we don't even know where that is. How do we get there? And he says, I will take you there because I am the road. Not only am I the road, I'm the guide on the road. And not only am I just a guide, I am a truthful guide. You can trust me. And the idea here is this rest in this place. Jesus defines eternal life in chapter 17 as life with God, life knowing God. It's not just quantity of years, it's quality. That's eternal life. And he says, if you want eternal life, if you want to know God, you know God as deeply as you know me. And we have to understand what he's saying here. Sometimes we treat this, and I've said this before, we treat this as if Jesus is in the way and not the way. That, yeah, you want to go to heaven, well, you gotta, you, I don't care what you're doing, but you got to go this route. He's in the way, and you got to get through him first. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, if you want to know how to get to God, look at me, follow me, follow the way. This is how you get there. Everybody we know, I would say almost everybody we know, is seeking something, is seeking meaning, is seeking some God, uh, something that transcends them. Maybe it's just love in general. Maybe it's, uh, you know, it could be being, being one with the tree. It can be, you know, loving Mother Earth. It can be whatever, a universe with a capital U, whatever. We're seeking something here. And our job is not to say, oh, that's garbage, garbage. You've got to do this. You've got to say this prayer. That's not our job. Our job is to say, you know what you're seeking? Let me introduce you to somebody that knows where he's going. Let me take your hand, and I'll give your hand to his hand, and he'll show you. I'm standing here by the door. Let me open the door for you and let you look inside. And sometimes I like just challenging people to say, you know, try following Jesus for three days just three days. Read the, new, read the note, one of the four Gospels, and just try following him for three days and see what you think. See if it makes any changes. That's all we have to do. Evangelism is not that hard. It's just saying, what you're looking for, try this. Jesus makes a pretty amazing claim here. Why don't you look at it? Maybe he's got something to say. Maybe he's got something to show you. And he says, I am the way, and I will take you into rest. That this is the source of the fellowship of God. And this is what, this is what distinguishes 
Christianity from, from traditional Judaism and Islam. That we have a God who is dwelling with us and inviting us to dwell with him. It is so much more personal, more profound than any kind of Eastern mysticism, than any kind of New Age thought, than any kind of ism you can think of. It's so much more profound, so much deeper than that, that it becomes the center of life, the way life was meant to be, the way life was created to be. This is following Jesus. And it's a place of rest. It's a place of coming home and dropping the luggage, dropping the baggage, and going, I'm home, I'm home. Abiding is vital for joy. Philip then asked the question, well, what's going on here? How do we know all this? And Jesus says, you will even do greater works than I am, than I'm doing. And what he means by that is that, that this, this uh, being in, dwelling in God, dwelling in the Trinity is not static. It is absolutely dynamic. It is also missional. It's not just rest, but it is also missional. And Philip asked for these signs, and Jesus says, don't you remember those signs you saw? At least believe those. And he says, you're going to be doing even greater signs than that. And what does he mean by that? What is Jesus? How can we do greater signs than Jesus? What's, what's he talking? Well, Jesus is not talking about flashier signs or, or spectacular signs. He never did those things to entertain or to wow or to, to draw attention to himself. He always did them for human flourishing. There was always a purpose of why he did those miracles and what he did his acts for. It was for human flourishing. It was for healing. It was for, for restoration. It was for human flourishing. And now he's saying, it'll be even greater because I was one man in villages in the Middle East. Now I've got millions out there. I've got millions of people out there working and doing for human flourishing. We have not been healed yet, but out of this human flourishing comes joy. And it's not, always, it's not always what we think it is. It not always comes from what we think it does. It, sometimes it's shouting, but sometimes it's silence. Sometimes it's, it, it comes with incredible burdens, and sometimes it comes with the view of, of riding this wave of impossibility. And then God tells us that he's do things, and, and, and we see these things happen, that God is working through us. And what happens is joy. But sometimes the things are so heavy and so burdensome that it takes that to drive us to our knees. But there's always this joy that comes out of that. And it comes out of our steadfast hearts that are committed to him, that are dwelling in him. And sometimes we can't always see it. We can't always see what, what that is, but, but it's there. And the joy comes because it is strength. It is strength that gives us. It's just like that old song used to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, that is really true. That's what carries us through these times that are circumstances that are so difficult, that are so dark and so shadowy. But we do these things. It's not static. It's, not static. it's a dynamic dwelling that is actually missional and promotes human flourishing. And abiding is vital, vital for our holiness. 
Now, for a lot of people, when you hear the word holiness or holiness or holy or something like that, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable. We don't really like that. It kind of makes us feel, eh, we kind of think of pietistic traits and attitudes. But that's, that's super holiness. But that's not the way Jesus describes it. Jesus describes it as hosting God's presence. And it's really interesting in this paragraph, the flow is reversed. At the beginning, we're dwelling. We're dwelling to, 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 uh, to receive and, and, and be a part of this love. And now it's God dwelling with us. At first, Jesus talks about us dwelling with him, and now he's dwelling with us. And why is he dwelling with us? He says, if you obey my commandments, if you obey my commands. And sometimes we have a hard time thinking about how does command work with love? I don't understand that. Commanding and, and obedience and love don't seem to mix, don't seem to go together very well. Well, I think the, base, the reason for that is because we have a hard time thinking of somebody greater than us. That love is something that you do between equals. And if I have to obey a command, that means that somehow or another I'm subservient and there's love that can't exist there. But that's really not true, is it? Jesus is fully human, but he is also our God. He is also our master. And he says we obey him as showing our love. What does he mean when, he's, when, when we have to obey him? He says, well, this command I give you, as I have loved you, you must love one another. It's more of a relational holiness that he's talking about. It's not a bunch of rules. It's basically relational holiness. And he says, you do that. It's not something we bristle at or grit our teeth for. But if we obey his commandments, then we enter the flow. And not only are we dwelling with God, Jesus says God dwells with us. And there is this mutuality here. So yes, we have to get used to the idea that you're not the highest being in the universe. Jesus is. And we can still love him. Because he first loved us. John repeats this in, chapter, in his first epistle in chapter 4, and he says, listen, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. Those two things go together. You can't have one without the other. And the last paragraph, or I'm sorry, the next to the last paragraph, he says, it is vital for peace. It is vital for peace. I, I miswrote that. that. It is the last paragraph. Peace in spite of troubles. And he says, I'm giving you a different kind of peace. The peace that the world offers is an illusion. It's temporary. Don't pay attention to it. He says that salvation, I've taken that burden of you manufacturing your own salvation away from you. I'm giving it to you. And this is a peace in spite of the problems, in spite of the trouble. This is the peace that's true. And he says, yeah, you may think there's peace. If you, many, many of you may remember the phrase you might have heard in, in high school called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And yeah, there was peace in Rome. But look at the price they paid. 
It was authoritarian. They kept peace by using the ultimate weapon, death. And Jesus says, yeah, that ruler is coming after me. And yes, the power of the emperor is coming after me, but there's a power behind him that is coming after me. And he says, you know what? It has nothing on me because I will overcome it. I will overcome it, and he does. He defeats the ultimate weapon. And I think about abiding with, with Christ, abiding with God through all this, and, and I, I wonder what the disciples were thinking in there behind that locked door of fear. And they thought, well, all that stuff that Jesus said about abiding, so much for that. And then Jesus appears, and they realize it still goes on. The abiding continues even beyond death, even after death. The abiding still goes on. Yes, we are still not healed, but he says, I bring peace. I bring peace, not the peace that the world brings. The systems of the world, they say they bring it. They say they're going to come. We say, we say just the future is going to be saved by technology, the, super, the future is going to be saved by science, the, the, the future is going to be saved by, now we have uh, Putin and Xi in China who say that the way to function in the 21st world is authoritarian leadership, and you have to have somebody in complete control for the, all the, for the countries to function. Well, we forget that these people who are in control are corrupt people, are depraved, and they're going to be stealing, they're going to be robbing, they're going to be killing. It doesn't work that way. It's not going to bring peace. Now, some of these things are great. I'm glad that when I go to the dentist, I get an anesthesia instead of just to fill my cap of cavity instead of just drilling. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that if I have to have surgery, that somebody knows what they're doing to take out my appendix or take out my cancer. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the technology that I get to see my daughter in real time on a screen, even though she lives across the ocean. I appreciate all that. But guess what? We're still sick. We're still suffering. We're still not healed. And Jesus says, the peace that I bring is different. Stephen Freeman, he's an Orthodox priest that G.D. pointed me to about two or three years ago. Who He is just a treasure chest of wisdom. He says, if we acquire the spirit of peace, a thousand souls around us will be saved. Such a salvation would appear as quiet and ineffectual as 12 peasants in an upper room. But God has never had any other plan. It's always been this way. This is how we change the world. Things promise peace, promise future healed, but this is how it's done. The Trinity is more than just a math problem. It's somebody that we abide in. But what does that look like? How does it look like? It means that we share in the Trinity. We share in this flow. We reflect the Trinity back to the world. Is it important? It is a total, it's huge paradigm shift to view God this way. That we can dwell within this eternal flow of life and love. It is important because 
We become what we behold. We become what we worship. And if we are worshiping some God who's off in the distance, the static monarch who just sits back and separated from life, separated from the world and just critiques, that's what we're going to reflect to the world. But if we behold and participate and dwell in a God who says he will never leave us as orphans, that he doesn't just come into lives and then leave and, and pop in and out of our lives, that he is there and he'll never leave us as orphans, if we, if we worship that kind of God, then that's what we reflect to the world. And I feel like in America we have a lot of angry Christians today. A lot of abrasive, angry Christians. And I really believe it's reflecting the God they worship. That if we believe a God that's distant and we're to be afraid of him, that's what we're going to reflect. But if we believe in a God who doesn't leave us as orphans, that's what we reflect. We become what we behold. It's more than just a math problem to be solved. He is life itself. And he invites us to dwell in that. He invites us to, to remove the burden, to rest at home. He invites us to a deep intimacy with him. And that's Trinitarianism. That's why it's so important. It is this abiding, dwelling relationship that we have with this mysterious triune God whose glory was manifested in a crucifixion but overcome the, the fear and overcome the death. This abiding relationship continues on and on and on. We have to step into it. And that means we step into it daily. That means it reflects in our daily life. And that means when we step into this flow, that gap, we become the beloved. When we step into the flow, we become like Jesus is called the beloved. We become the beloved when we step into the Trinity. And that gap between who we are, the beloved, and how I live my life every day, bit by bit, that gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Where I start living like the person God sees me as, the beloved. And I'm able to reflect that to you, to my wife, to my kid, as that gap gets smaller. Abiding in the Trinity is absolutely essential. It is absolutely vital for our faith as disciples. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for you coming to the earth to sacrifice yourself for us, to remove what is killing us, to heal us. We thank you that you are making us the beloved. Father, may we leave here abiding in your presence. In the name of our Savior, amen.